minds are so powerful that what we focus on reverberates through every aspect of our lives. So why not see what happens when we put our attention on all the good things people are doing? Join me for the good with Teresa G as we start a ripple effect by focusing on all the greatness in the world. Many of you who know me well know that I want to have a passive home in my near future. And when I tell people this, they often ask me to explain what a passive home is. And I'm honestly pretty bad at explaining it, which inspired me to invite Lindsay Shack with Love Shack Architecture on the show to talk about passive and sustainable building. Hi, Lindsay. Hi there. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you come on with us today. Me as well. Um, I just want to give you guys a little background about Lindsay. Lindsay Shack established her career as an architect and an educator by combining her knowledge of architectural technology with her background in psychology and research. Lindsay is an intuitive designer and communicator, and she creates solutions that relate a client's needs to the context of the project to arrive at healthy, sustainable space. Doesn't that sound fabulous? I want one of those spaces. <laughs> <laughs> so let, uh, let me tell us a little bit about how you came upon this passion um, in designing and building. Sure. Um, you know, I, uh, thanks for having me on first and foremost. And I love, um, I, I love that you're excited about this topic and it's one that I'm pretty passionate about. So I really appreciate being asked to speak about it. Yeah, I, you know, I was one of those kids that was drawing when I was young and, uh, always wanted to be an architect. Um, definitely went through some challenges before getting to architecture school. But once I found myself there, I realized that it was this really wonderful combination of, you know, pragmatic engineering, but with also some artistry in it where, you know, I, I was maybe too artistic to fit into a mold of an engineer and not nearly artistic enough to, and be free enough to just, you know, live as an artist. So um, architecture really spoke to me in that way in design. And, um, you know, definitely as a student, I wanted to understand you know, how buildings can basically live to support healthy human life, to support the environment. Um, was, I was never you know, so design-driven that I couldn't pay attention to the functionality and sort of the pragmatic parts of mm. um, what a building should do for people. Like it was never good enough for me that a building is beautiful. Um, as an architect, I've traveled extensively and I know it when I see a space that is sculptural and, you know, emotive and makes us feel something. But, you know, if the lighting is bad and the air stinks and mm -hmm. the, the acoustics <laughs> are terrible and it's freezing cold or really hot, like it's really hard to appreciate that space for what it could be if it was just meant to be pretty, you know? So, um, so as a designer uh, and in with a background before architecture school, I actually completed an undergraduate degree in psychology, and I was very interested in neuroscience and, you know, behaviorism. How do people make decisions? What motivates people to do the things that they do? And so, was it, that definitely led to, you know, into my research as an architect into, you know, what kind of decisions do people make when they're designing a home? When they're, with, they have a company, they're building a building. And what motivates them to, you know, make choice A, B, or C? Wow, that's a really interesting mix there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not common, I don't think. Most, and I tell people all the time, like I didn't do this on purpose, guys. Like this is how it worked out for me, and it worked out great. But I couldn't have, in a forecasting way, sort of 
charted this path. It, it was really a circumstance of, of life events. Um, it's a longer story. But to, you know, having a background in research and behaviorism, it, it just really flavored my architectural research in that I couldn't let go of the, the human condition. And so as an architect, it felt like, well, you know, why bother unless I'm going to create spaces that are going to support that human condition? And then it just always pursued, uh, in, uh, I guess, encouraged me to research farther. Like, well, what, what is the best way to do this? And to continue to ask questions and to be willing to learn new methods and systems. And uh, ultimately, it led me to the, the type of practice that I'm in now. That is amazing. That's a, that's some really wonderful melding of some, you know, I feel like all those neurology and understanding the human condition goes perfectly with architecture because you're living in, you know, like I tell some of my clients, your house is your second skin. So it's important that your house is healthy and breathing and, and uh, a good environment for you. So that's just an amazing mix, I think. Thank you. And, you know, so much in architecture is just focused on aesthetics. Like what does, what do things look like? Right. Um, right. And that, right. that works really well in print media, on social media. Like there's absolutely a, a, a strong place for that to be expressed and it's valuable, but you know, it's harder to tangibly talk about or to describe to people how a, how a place makes you feel. Um, mm-hmm. Or whether or not you can sleep well there or whether or not you can relax. So trying to figure out the elements of design that promote those levels of health, I think is something that we've been really curious about. So I I guess, you know, my next question was to ask how you, when you started integrating um, sustainability, but it seems like that would be just sort of part of the whole aspect when, because you're looking at it at such a holistic approach. Um, but so where in your career did you decide to sort of move more into the sustainable approach and how do you describe sustainable at your firm? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I guess I would begin to say that I always thought I was operating as a sustainable designer and architect after school. And I will be completely candid that when I discovered passive house design, Uh, I went through a whole period of being rather angry because I had been practicing for um, over a decade at that point. And, you know, I had never heard of this. And I sort of thought, gosh, why wasn't there more building science in my architectural education? Why wasn't the embodied energy of materials more important to the people that taught me, to the people that I learned from as an intern in my first jobs? Um, All of us thought that we were promoting sustainability and yet we weren't doing what my company is doing now. Um, and I think there's a, there's a fairly large knowledge gap among the general public of designers around what's possible in sustainability. And one of our biggest hurdles is, you know, the perception that it's just more expensive and hard to do. But back to your question, you know, how it started for me, uh, I had been working for others for years. I had been teaching as an um, instructor at the School of Architecture at Montana State. Uh, I had been working for a couple of different boutique firms. And, you know, just like many people, when the recession happened, um, I actually found myself uh, pregnant with my first child and needing, um, you know, more structure around what I was doing. So I started uh, working for the university and then ultimately working privately. And I reconnected with a colleague of mine from graduate school, Lindsay Love. And yes, we're both Lindsay's, but we, uh, we 
sort of reconnected over social media. She was building her own home in Idaho, which is a hybrid straw bale home. It's a fantastic building. And I was so impressed with her work that I started to learn from her a bit more. Lindsay's expertise is heavily on the materials side, construction side, and in natural materials. And she's designed and worked and built with some of the best natural builders in the West. Um, she had a fairly established career in uh, the Southwest, uh, working in Santa Fe um, and bringing some of those you know, more indigenous and natural methods and low-tech stuff back up here. And in working with her, she really pushed me to think really um, specifically about the materials we were using about, you know, where are they coming from? What are they doing for us? What are they giving us? And between the two of us, my, you know, my level of technical knowledge and her level of technical knowledge really combined to create this great partnership where we really can uh, have a complementary design relationship. And, um, and I learn things from her all the time, you know, and she, she really does retain sort of a help, helping us retain, I, I would say, a connection to what a, what a holistic design is, where we're considering so many different things, whether it's the site, you know, what, what's going on on the site of the building, where's the sun, where the wind's coming from, where are the materials coming from, who's using the building, what are their needs, what sensitivities do people have, what are the goals, and like, what are we ultimately after in this building? Because it can do so much for us if we take the time in the design process to pay attention to them and give, like, honor those choices and not just sort of hit the easy button and do the status quo because, mm. you know, the status quo out there in building is not really built upon holistic or sustainable design. It's, it's built on perspective. So, and then the other part of your question, you know, defining sustainability, um, you know, that it's, it's a tough thing to, to define succinctly, but the best that I can do is, you know, working with design that we feel like we can, um, that will still be around, you know, years, generations into the future, and that doesn't negatively impact the environment around it. And that comes with the caveat of understanding that, like, the most sustainable building we can build is no building. So once we step into the arena of, like, we're going to build a structure, we're going to build a home, we're going to build whatever it is, a factory, um, we have already gone beyond basically what would be an ideal sustainable choice. And I think that as mm -hmm. sustainable designers, sometimes we wrestle with that, that, okay, what we're doing is still impacting the environment. And if we're going to do it, well, let's do the best job that we can. So we try to, you know, maintain or, and, and continue to push ourselves to live up to that standard. It is, it is sort of a caveat. And it's interesting because, you know, you have this idea, like, for, um, when I was doing design all the time and it was sustainable, people would bring me in and they'd say things like, well, what do you think we should just tear out all this brick and part of me? And, you know, so it's really balancing out what people want. And then also thinking, well, is the brick working? Like what's really wrong with the brick? Because honestly, that brick is taking it out. What's the, what's the benefit and how is it going to affect the landfill when we just take all this brick out and put in a new substance? So that's a really interesting balance to find when you're building and under the sustainable. Yeah, you're no, you're so right, Teresa, because you have to you have to think about not just, you know, what do you bring into the site, but then what's leaving the site? What happens to it afterwards? And, you know, with with thinking about the full life cycle of our buildings, it gets back to, you know, what Lindsay Lovis said before about, you know, hey, can you think about the elements of your house going back into your garden? And if we build our homes with metal and foam and plastic, um, 
you know, there, there are sometimes other adaptive reuses for those materials, but gosh, how much harder is that mm-hmm. as opposed to working with things that are natural? So, and again, we, we also try to remember that um, sometimes this, the sustainability space can feel like, you know, the perfect gets in the way of the good. And so, you know, we're not able to do it perfectly every time, but we are trying to do it the, better each time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that sense, we're trying to, sometimes the perfect, you know, that can't get in the way of the good. We just have to do the best we can. Yeah. It's the intention, the intention behind it all. So passive, I, um, I've talked about how I want to build my next home. I want it to be passive. Can you give, can you tell us what a passive home means? Sure. And, um, and I hope that, you know, there, there has been a, I hope I can answer that question in a way that is meaningful to to you. Um, passive has maybe, I would say two kind of distinctions that are important to understand. Um, there's the movement that was, that began probably in the sixties and the seventies in full force, where we were trying to build buildings that required no additional energy and honestly were passively heated from the sun um, or from some on-site energy source. Maybe it was a wood stove, uh, depending on the climate, um, you know, there's different options. And one of the things that, um, that is different that I'm working on is something called Passive House Certified, which is a German energy metric that is probably a poor translation into English because it's a pretty active system and it's not just for houses, or excuse me, not just for homes, it's for any building. So to define a passive home in the system that we're working in is a building that basically is designed to operate on the least amount of additional energy that's required to keep it at a maximum level of comfort. Um, So there's lots of different ways one can achieve that goal in terms of what materials you're using and what the design is, but the ultimate goal is really just about an energy metric. So if you talk about net zero buildings, for example, an important distinction of net zero is that net zero doesn't necessarily qualify how well the building performs itself. So for example, you could have an older home that is very leaky and inefficient, but with, you know, a big pot of money, you could, you could install a giant solar, you know, panel array and generate as much electricity from the sun as that building needs to use and call yourself net zero. But that tactic doesn't, approach anything that's going to help any of our climate action goals or reduce the overuse of energy in our world. Um, So when we talk about uh, a sustainable home, a passive home, we realize that the passive home is sort of the best building block to get toward a carbon neutral or truly net zero building because you're starting with a design that is meant to have a minimal impact on what it needs from the grid or the site or the sun or whatever your energy source is in order to maintain safety and comfort for the occupants. And then, you know, the actual added energy that's needed, whether it be from a solar array or from, you know, your electrical grid is really, really small. And so what we're doing is designing homes that that additional energy that's needed to keep you comfortable is, is about 10% of what is needed to heat and cool a traditional code level built home. That's amazing. Yeah, like it's the 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 analogy that's often used is that a, you know a passive home could be heated with essentially a hair dryer that's plugged mm-hmm. in because 
you're you're taking into account again holistically we create heat in our homes all kinds of ways yes the wind the sun comes in your windows and might heat up the floor but we've got our our bodies are giving off energy and heat our cooktop our lights our washing machine our dryer you know even you know your air conditioner has in your fridge like they're creating heat and our buildings today are actually designed to be leaky enough to where that moisture and heat can make its way out. And then your heating system can then, you know, bring more heat in to, um, to compensate for the loss. And so, you know, in the, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, the Germans really started looking at the building science of building envelopes. They thought, okay, if we build the building super tight, but then we actively ventilate the whole building, we get constant fresh air. So we don't get that sick building syndrome that happened a lot in the 80s. We're not getting mold in the basements. We have constant fresh air. What we get is, is this very comfortable, safe building where you know exterior contaminants like pollen, if you're sensitive to pollens, or smoke from you know extensive wildfires, they don't make it into your home because you have, first of all, a super tight home, and second of all, you've got um, a constantly filtered and refreshed air supply inside your home. And then, you know, it's, it's pretty low tech too. I mean, if you feel like you're getting kind of warm and you want to open the window, you just open the window. Mm-hmm. Um, there are restrictions on that kind of thing. It's not super high tech that like you need an engineer to come by your house and, you know, <laughs> calibrate it. <laughs> that, it's that just that you have this opportunity. Yeah. Like no one's going to go for that. Um, but you have an opportunity when you design a building and you build a new structure to set it up that way. And it's your best, best chance to sort of living in a, um, in a, in a way where you're requiring a minimum of energy from the grid. So when I explain it to people, I say, you know, it's a house that can maintain a perfect, a comfortable temperature at like 68, 70 degrees in the winter and the summer without a lot of additional support. It just holds that temperature. Is that correct? And is that, that's exactly. a small glimpse of exactly right, Teresa. Yep. concept. Yes. And most houses have like a pretty significant temperature swing from morning to evening or mm-hmm. say in the summertime from when you wake up at eight in the morning until like the heat comes on at, you know, and it's really hot, 80 degrees outside at four in the afternoon. And a passive house doesn't change. A passive house is consistently the same temperature inside, no matter what's happening outside. That's what its job is. And, you know, one of the ways that I like to describe it here is, um, and I don't know if we can use brand names, but um, you know, I'll ask contractors around here if they know what a Yeti cooler is. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what a Yeti cooler is. It's like the super expensive cooler. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, remember when they came on the market and they were pretty new, people were sort of scoffing at it. Like, why would somebody spend several hundred dollars on a cooler? That's so ridiculous. But then they would go on a river trip or a hunting trip and somebody would have ice on day four or five. And pretty mm-hmm. soon everyone's buying Yeti coolers because they're yeah. realizing the performance they get out of that investment, right? Yeah. So yeah, they're stupid expensive coolers. but We never thought work. we'd buy one, but we sure did. I know. My husband and I bought one too. And we love it. But like, you know, I think we resisted it for two years being like, oh gosh, why would those people spend so much money on a cooler? Well, for the job, it does it really well. It's the best thing to take because you don't have to worry about it. It is. Right. So, you know, passive building and sustainability... Can you talk about the long-term effects? So let's say that how can we, by implementing more passive homes and buildings in general, um, how is that going to affect the long-term health of our planet and all living life on Earth? Well, I'll tell you that the, the, the group of colleagues that I've built around the country and around the world, actually, that are working on passive structures, you know, I've talked to them at several conferences. Um, we have 
quite a few online meetings, and I've never met a group of individuals that was as dedicated to impacting climate change as this group of individuals. And, um, you know, not to be crass or anything, but they're not full of shit. Like, they are not just showing up as designers and saying, oh, I've got this new WizBank technology and, you know, or this cool way to design a building and it's going to have some minor impact. They're honestly sharing information and collaborating in a way that can hopefully get all of us to design better buildings because we believe that this will be the way that it will become the best practice in the future. It'll just be what you do because the building science supports that this is the best way to build. And so if all of us are designing our buildings to a higher standard than the actual, you know, need for energy in our communities will will be better spread out we won't the cost of operating our buildings will go down um you know for for municipalities that are operating housing or institutional buildings or for schools or universities where all these taxpayer dollars are going into how a um how a building is going to be you know managed over the long term this, uh, this system then is going to reduce all those operating costs. It makes a ton of things possible for people if they're not saddled with an unexpected cost and investment in the operation of their buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, and then furthermore, you know, just that level of comfort that one gets in the building, the level of clean air, the, love, the quality of sleep one can get. Because a passive home is not just consistently, you know, consistent from a thermal standpoint. It's also consistent from a clean air standpoint and an acoustic standpoint. So, you know, if you're trying to value all of your assets and think about like, what are, what are, you know, what, what do I value? What are my priorities? You know, think hard about how do I value quality sleep at night? How do I value, you know, seasonal allergies? How do I value, fresh air if there's something toxic going on outside my building is my neighbor you know painting their house with a nasty chemical is my you know do i am i downwind of something that's not happy like a forest fire mm-hmm. in terms of like general holistic health a building that is designed this way not only reduces all of our own energy needs which as a collective as a community i think we all have to look at but then it provides a space i think where we can um, actually operate and to a much higher level of health and um, lower level of exposure to toxins than most of us are living in right now. Gives me goosebumps. <laughs> Is that weird talking about passive home builds, buildings create goosebumps? I mean, <laughs> Is not, it giving everyone else goosebumps? Me. I, I, I get, I'm a giant geek for this, right? And I think that's probably evident. So um, it's not weird to me at all. I mean, this is sort of, you know, I've, I've got a family and I've got two little kids and I think a lot about like, you know, and it became more clear to me after I became a mom. It was like, you know, what, what goes into their little bodies? What are they mm-hmm. exposed to? Like, how am I able to make a difference in that sense for them? Um, and it really uh, empowers me and encourages me to, that, that this work is really necessary. Yes, it is very necessary. And that's why I was so excited that you um, said that you join us today. One other question about when you mentioned carbon neutral building, is a passive home automatically carbon neutral or no? Not necessarily, no. And what does carbon neutral building mean? So um, we, when we're talking carbon neutral, we're kind of talking about the embodied carbon of materials. And it, that refers to... Um, the carbon dioxide that's emitted during like the manufacture or the transport or the construction of building materials. 
And then also with their total life emissions. So if you get in your car, you know that new car smell that everybody kind of loves, like what you're smelling there is off gassing. Mm-hmm. And I don't love uh, that it's the smell. same with new carpet that, yeah, no, I don't love that smell either. Some people do. Um, but I know what I'm smelling now. Uh, and like it's the same with our carpet or, a lot of the manufactured items that go into our homes, like they have a, they have a chemical um, emission that they give off. So that includes, you know, even the embodied carbon of manufacturing materials, um, things like concrete and uh, plastics and steel and, you know, even, even just, you know, diesel engines that are, you know, um, maybe cutting down trees, right? Like it's just the reality of the things that we're using to, to build buildings with. And so when we talk about carbon neutrality, we're, talking about um, materials that can that can account for the embodied carbon that they bring to the project and then potentially also then sequester carbon um, in the in, in in their in their in their elements and in the space and sometimes when we talk carbon neutral how to get to carbon neutral it's a little bit like esoteric and um, abstract because what people are doing is they're you know they're sort of like creating carbon in one bucket and then buying, say, carbon offsets in another bucket and by Mm. that zeroing out. And that's not what we're really talking about. What Mm. we're talking about is designing to a minimum amount of additional energy and then choosing materials that minimize the embodied carbon. And And if even better, they help sequester and pull the carbon out of the atmosphere once they're built. So uh, materials like timber, earth and plaster, straw bale, you know, wood and stone, they're they're all natural materials that um, are part of a general life cycle that pull the carbon out of the air and and can help us um, sort of stave off some of the global warming. And what we know right now is that buildings in general are responsible for almost 40% of all of the carbon emissions around the world. So oh my gosh. building this way isn't the, it, yeah, building this way is not the total answer, but it's a significant portion of the answer. And so when we talk to people about, you know, gosh, this climate change thing is, you know, so overwhelming, we do have some moments in our lives when we have an ability to act on this. And does it make a difference? I, I would argue, of course it does. You know, even small, small movements in this giant, giant system, they still matter. And so to approach carbon neutrality is to start, try to marry those two things where we're needing less and also, you know, sequestering more and living in a space that's not continuously off-gassing toxins into our environment. There's more kind of technical carbon neutral definitions that we can get into, but I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to bore everybody with that. <laughs> but the, you know, what I'm taking from it is when I build my passive home, I also request that I want it to be a carbon neutral building. Is there anything yes. each of us can do today to make our home a healthier, greener space? I, yes. I think that, I think that one of the first things we can all do is just educate ourselves. Um, having, taking some ownership of your space and almost like deciding to like spend an afternoon looking at it as if it's not your space, you know, having, giving yourself permission to kind of look at it through a critical eye of, you know, this is, these are things that I think are working really well. These are things that I think we could improve upon. Um, you know, some people live in a home that they own and they have, you know, a authority over and some of us don't some people rent and or they're in some kind of you know transitionary time in their life and they're they just want to make improvements in the space where they are so um 
I would, I would always first direct people to sort of the really basic fundamental things of, of good natural light and fresh air and kind of removing things in your space that might create uh, toxicity or, um, you know, bad flow or, you know, kind of getting after comfort and health in that way. And then beyond that, you know, then you can start to look at, you know, what are your habits in your home? Um, you know, do you, it's just simple things that I'm sure most of your audience is pretty familiar with, like really, you know, thinking about, you know, how much energy does my family use? We, could we be more um, conservative with our water use? Could we be more conservative with our energy use? Could we look into where our power is coming from? Are we able to support power sources that are more sustainable? Um, I know where I live, I can, I can definitely look into solar energy if that's available to me. I can look into wind energy. I can pull my grid energy from particular sources if I'm willing to do a little homework to do so. So they're getting educated and then finding ways where um, on a personal level you can participate are the best ways to start and to feel like you are part of the solution and not just part of the problem. Um, I know as architects, you know, we all have houses of our own and families of our own and um, people that we care about. And even for us, sometimes it can be really challenging to wonder if you're doing enough. And at the end of the day, you know, we all want to enjoy our family and have fun and not be so burdened by all of this. So those little choices, I think, can help us feel like we're making progress every day. And then once in a while, you get like a big opportunity, you know, are you going to buy a car? Are you going to build a home? Are you going to, you know, renovate the, uh, the building that your company's in? And then you can make a bigger push for reaching a higher standard. But in terms of every day, like we all have little habits of uh, what businesses we support, where we, how far away do we go to get our groceries, you know, what kinds of food do we source, and that's everybody's own personal choice. Everybody can mm -hmm. figure that out for themselves. Um, but just taking the time to honor those choices, I think, is is a good place to start. I love it. What do you do every day that makes you be the best you? Is there something you do every day? on a regular basis? Um, you know, it's been, it's been a kind of fast and furious several years. Uh, and it's slowing down. Gosh, this is a hard question. I think all of us, but my business partner and I, we've both been pretty dedicated to making sure there's still time for things like uh, meditation. Health. And uh, one of the things Lindsay Love and I partnered on was, you know, we, we both, we both wanted to stay in our mountain communities. We both live in relatively small Western communities relative to, you know, other big urban areas of the country. And we knew that we could move to an urban area and, you know, make it, you know, if we wanted to, if we wanted, we could do that. And maybe we, maybe we'd be successful. Hopefully we would, but everybody wanted to stay where they were. Nobody wanted to move. So we decided that we would partner, we would, and then we would build a company where there was time and space for, um, us to do something besides be architects. Um, the architectural community is a very hardworking community. We have a bit of a work hard, play hard culture. And uh, we work for others uh, where the culture was very much about, you know, slaving away and, you know, working all week and, you know, not doing much else. And we wanted to have more balance in our lives. So I think for us, one thing we do every day is, you know, showing up for this work means that we're also making time for those things, then making time for self-care. So if you need an hour for a personal appointment, you take the hour and we don't ask questions, you know, and we leave it up to each other to be professional enough and organized enough that we still take care of our commitments while maintaining, you know, whatever level of care we need for ourselves. And so 
personally, you know, my best bet is if I, if I can get myself out of bed in the morning, you know, and, and make coffee and then have some time for some, um, whether it's fitness, you know, going bike riding or running or yoga or meditation, um, I find that I can uh, better approach the rest of the challenges of the day. So it's not really that unique to anyone else, but, you know, getting, getting up and out of bed in the morning for me um, before the rest of the house wakes up and is needing me uh, tends to be the best thing I can do to set myself up to feel good. I can relate to that. And I think moms everywhere can. <laughs> is that like early morning when the quiet, the house yeah. is totally quiet and you get those few minutes to yourself? I, it's golden. It's golden, it, right? Yeah. It I is. used to try to stay up really late at night and get a whole bunch of stuff done and I would just be destroyed. I couldn't keep that up for very long at all. <laughs> so... Um, and it's not always easy to get up early in the morning either. That's always a challenge too, but I, I've had a little bit more success trying that. So everyone, you can find um, more out, more about Lindsay and her firm, Love Shack Architecture, by following the links on our website. And I just want to say, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for creating ripples of positive change with what you're doing every day. I've, I love following your projects and I um, look forward to working with you someday soon on a project. Um, so thank you so much. We would love so much to get that opportunity to work with you, Teresa. It would be great. And I really appreciate you inviting me to chat with you. And, um, you know, hopefully uh, if your viewership would find us on Instagram, we're at Love Shack Architecture. And uh, hopefully, you know, this is useful information for your audience and really appreciate being asked. And I'll put the, their Instagram link on my website too. So you can go over there and follow them on Instagram because it really is fun to see all the different projects they're doing in the West. And I'm just, I want to end the show, everyone, with a thought from um, Lindsay Love, Lindsay Shack's partner at Love Shack Architecture. And she has this quote, they have this quote up on their website. And I just want you to sort of think about this um, a little bit. She says, what if at the end of your building's life, say 150 years from now, all of the components could go into the garden. I love that so much. Everyone have a great day. I'll see you next time. Thank you. I'm Teresa Gabrielle, and you've been listening to The Good with Teresa G. You can follow The Good with Teresa G on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you haven't yet, go to the Apple Podcast and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation. Thank you for listening.